Hi, everyone. Welcome to the February 18th, 2022 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. We've got a great lineup today, so let's get right to it. After meeting in a closed session on Wednesday this week, the Douglas County School Board announced that it would not release the names of the teachers who were absent on, on February 3rd due to potential legal and safety issues. The announcement was in response to an open records request asking for the names of teachers who called in absent on the same day of protest against the firing of Superintendent Corey. Wise. The person who filed the request uh, was not released, but the request was eventually rescinded. Uh, a couple people out of town, things like this, a little bit switch up the order. Eric Sonderman, longtime political analyst here at the table and columnist with the Gazette newspapers and color politics. You get first crack at this one. Uh, we didn't, I don't know if we had an, an expectation of another uh, level of this circus out of Douglas County, but I did not have this one predicted. What did you think of how it all went down? Well, the first thing is the folks, the good folks in Boulder need to get busy to get back in the newspaper. They need to do something <laughs> controversial, wacky, because Boulder's been knocked out of the paper uh, by Douglas County. Uh, I'm not a big fan of doxing, which is, you know, what the threat was, whether that's coming from the left or the right, and neither side is immune from the temptation. So I was good with the decision, even though I opposed the walkout or the sick out, whatever you call it, thought it was misguided. I, I was not a fan of the idea of releasing those names and addresses. But the, you know, the bigger issue there, school boards should be able, Dominic, to have a superintendent who reflects their philosophy, their values. In Denver, there's an irony here now that Tay Anderson and others you know, fired off a letter to Douglas County saying, tis, tis, shame, shame. But the Denver School Board, when it changed hands a few years ago, they sent Susanna Cordova packing. They brought in a superintendent to their liking. The folks in Douglas County are welcome to do the same. But optics matter and process matters. First of all, you have to follow open records and uh, sunshine and transparency laws. And secondly, the optics do matter. You need to take some time, take a breath here, have some public input. They seem to be rushing now to appoint a new superintendent within a matter of weeks. Totally the wrong move. They ought to take a breath, have a public process, and then put the superintendent in place who reflects the direction they want to go. Join us, Marianne Goodland, Chief Legislative Reporter from Color Politics. It's wonderful to have you here, Marianne. Uh, now, this is going to be the majority in place in Douglas County for uh, four more years. So it's not as if anything's going to change quickly on the other end of it. Do you think we'll see this continued momentum speed up? It's been, as Eric said, it's been very quick, uh, very fast. Will that continue? I think so. And all you have to do is look back at what happened in Douglas County uh, back in 2017 when you had this big fight going on amongst the uh, conservatives on the board and a, uh, a handful of, I don't, I'm not even sure what you call them, backers of teachers or whatever. And uh, they, they were in the midst of this huge fight uh, with the voucher program that ultimately went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And then the elections happened, and the first thing that that new board did when it was it was when the philosophy or ideology switched, one of the first things that they did was to cancel that lawsuit and say it's a moot point. We're not even going to do anything about it. I I think people in Douglas County get really really worked up about about what goes on in their school districts, and they and they're they're super involved on both sides. And I don't think that this is going to change anytime soon. 
Michael Fields, president of Advanced Colorado, the, the Advanced Colorado Institute. It's great, great to have you back here, Michael. Um, as we said, this is going to be the majority for four more years. It's not going anywhere. And they were duly elected, so it's not as if there is, it was a, a close election. I believe me, as a resident of Douglas County, I can tell you that it, it, it was not close. But do you think the board, the conservative majority of the board, will adopt a slower strategy, seeing the reaction that's happened in the last few weeks? Well, I think one thing they need to provide stability. Uh, you know, my kids go uh, to, to a district school, a neighborhood school in Douglas County. Uh, and so this is a, an issue that's relevant to our family. And I think, uh, you know, making sure that, that there's stability, that there's a focus on academics, right? This is what we're here for, is for kids, our kids learning, uh, you know, our, our teachers, good teachers staying and happy there. I think the next superintendent needs to be carefully picked. Uh, it needs to be somebody who will focus on, on those things. Are you pro-teacher uh, and are you focused on academics and raising uh, you know, a lot of these scores that aren't good even for Douglas County uh, in terms of reading, in terms of math. Um, but I, I worry that this ends up turning into, I've seen these, these fights for many years, this back and forth between adults arguing and people creating chaos and, and you know, back and forth on ideology uh, instead of focusing in on, you know, we're here to have kids learn, uh, for teachers to teach. And, and so I'm hoping that this process of the superintendent, that things calm down in Douglas County, uh, that we can get refocused on, on what really matters. And rounding out the panel, making her debut in this program, Julie Riskin, Executive Director of the Colorado Cross Disability Coalition. Thank you so much for being here, Julie. It's great to have you here. You know, we've been talking a lot about the circus in Douglas County, but it is a significant county in the metro area and likely a lot of eyes watching because a lot of money was invested into these races for the school board. Do you think the some of the uh, craziness that we're seeing in Douglas County might be seen in other counties? Is this not just isolated to Douglas County? I don't think it is. I think we're seeing the beginning of that in Mesa County right now. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's very unfortunate because I agree about the stability. And the t we are putting so much on teachers right now that they can't teach. They're micromanaged to the nth degree. I think it's confusing for students. We're also depriving our students when we get hysterical over equity policies of their ability to function in today's world. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense, and it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that continues and move on. Let's get to our next topic. Mesa, speaking of Mesa County, that was a perfect segue, by the way. <laughs> Julie, uh, Mesa County brings us another plot twist this week. Mesa County Clerk and Recorder Tina Peters announced she will be is running for Colorado Secretary of State, because what else is there to do? The announcement came just days after Peters was arrested for resisting a search warrant and in the midst of an ongoing investigation to determine her role in an election security breach. She she joins three other Republicans in the Secretary of State race. Uh, Marianne, you are well-versed on many, many different topics, but you are also uh, there at the Capitol. So when something like this drops, this big old headline, what were the reactions that you saw to this uh, with the statewide race featuring Tina Peters? At the Capitol, not so much of a reaction. I, I, I think people are, lawmakers in particular, are trying to stay away from this. As, as much as humanly possible. Outside of the Capitol, though, there have been other developments this week. The Colorado Ethics Commission uh, took up a, a request from Tina Peters' attorney, former Secretary of State Scott Gessler, to delay their actions against her on a complaint uh, that's tied to this whole Mike Lindell Cyber Symposium um, business. And the plea from uh, Gessler was that while she's dealing with all of these other issues and trying to run for Secretary of State at the same time, 
she needs she needs not to be dealing with civil matters. Uh, there is a grand jury that has been impaneled in Grand Junction, and you know it, I think it'll be an interesting race to see what happens first: the primary or her getting indicted. <laughs> we'll be interested to watch, Michael. Uh, this is either a great. Besides, I know if she was here, Patty Calhoun would be talking about how wonderful a great gift for her this is, because just writing more about the adventure that is Tina Peters. But this is either a great gift for Pam Anderson, who is running as one of those other Republicans in the race, or for Jenna, Jenna Griswold if Tina Peters somehow gets out of the primary. Um, who do you think reaps the greatest benefit? Yeah, well, I think Pam Anderson is in a good spot to get the nomination. I think Republicans have a clear path to pick one way or the other. Do you take Tina Peters, you know, with her legal issues, with her election conspiracies, uh, and I think you likely lose if, if she's the nominee, or do you go with somebody like Pam Anderson, who, uh, you know, was a clerk and recorder in Jefferson County, a county that Republicans are going to have to win this year in order to do well statewide, and I think she likely wins. And, and I think Jenna Griswold is vulnerable, uh, and partially because, uh, you know, you need to take the politics out of the Secretary of State's office. And she's somebody who had special interests writing press releases, a lot of turnover in her office. Uh, she also, uh, you know, somebody who kind of camps out on MSNBC, a very political person. And I think Pam could come in and say, you know, what, let's make this boring again. Let's make the Secretary of State's office boring, do the job, uh, make sure elections are run well, make sure the other jobs of the Secretary of State are done. But I think if Tina Peters gets this nomination, uh, the election will completely be about her. And I think that uh, means that, that likely Republicans will lose that. And so I think she gets through the assembly and I think you know it's more likely than not she loses in that primary and you have a matchup between Pam and, and Jenna. I think uh, you should get full credit if you, I think you just wrote her bumper sticker. Make, make, make Colorado uh, Secretary of State's office boring again. Uh, that's well done there. Uh, Julie, uh, this is, um, Tina Peters is one of a couple of, I think, heroes to a very small faction, but very vocal faction of Republicans in Colorado. Generally, as a state, it's not a conspiracy theory type of state, but there, there is a faction, especially in the western half of Colorado, that would consider her a hero. Does that generate enough energy to kind of keep this going a little bit, or is this a flash in the pan? I don't think in Colorado it generates enough energy. I think in other parts of the country it probably does, mm -hmm. and I... I haven't looked. I don't know how much of the money that's coming in might be from other parts of the country. But I think, in, I think Colorado voters, again, are sick of the politics, do, do not like the division, are much more middle of the road, and, 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 and they don't want the drama. Yeah, it does, it does seem like a, a state that does not like the drama. That's a good point. Eric, as you look at this, uh, I did not have wild GOP primary for the Secretary of State's office on my 2022 bingo card, did you? I actually did. I wrote a column. <laughs> uh, I don't think this is exactly Babe Ruthian in terms of calling a shot, but I wrote a column, I don't know, four, five, six weeks ago on the Secretary of State's race, on the potential matchup between Pam Anderson and Jenna Griswold, and I predicted in there that Tina Peters was likely to get into the race. So I'll, well done. you know, take, take for all the times we're wrong, every once in a while, you know, <laughs> every once in a while you, you get it right. Uh, I think the risk to Republicans here, I agree with Michael and Julie and others that I think the odds are that Pam Anderson survives this primary, but it will not be easy. And I have to say, I think the faction that Tina Peters speaks to is not a majority faction of the party, but it might be a larger faction than some people mm -hmm. give it credit for. And it keeps this whole crazy issue of election denial that the Christy Burton Browns of the world and others are desperately trying to avoid that Heidi Ganahl, 
is unable to skate around or, or talk candidly about, it keeps that issue front and center at least through the primary between Tina Peters, Dave Williams running in the primary against Doug Lamborn, obviously Lauren Boebert having her own primary that she'll likely win. It keeps that issue front and center. Lastly, there's an irony here that Tina Peters could be convicted of a felony and still serve as Secretary of State, but she would be ineligible to serve as a precinct election judge. <laughs> the, the, the ironies keep stacking up on this one. And, and it's funny because in that particular primary race, you mentioned the different folks, it, the, that faction that wants to uh, recount 2020 and believes conspiracy mm -hmm. theories, that faction can actually be split by three different uh, candidates right now. Right there, there's only one candidate that is looking to be boarding again. So it will be interesting to see if uh, that grows between now and June. The Denver City Council continued to develop the city's redistricting map with the input of residents this week. The city grew by 115,000 people over the last 10 years, and several maps have been proposed by council members. Meanwhile, the council's proposed affordable housing mandates have been met with scrutiny by builders groups who warned that the mandates could drive up housing costs. A lot of great city issues here, Michael, but... Um, this is going to be a big impact for the civic elections, municipal elections in Denver coming up next spring. Do you think we'll see uh, changes, a lot of changes, significant changes in the Denver districts? Uh, I think there could be. I mean, the redistricting is always kind of a wild card, right? And we just did this uh, at the state level. And, you know, the process got moved away from the legislature uh, to an independent commission. And I think that's really the best way to do it. And I think that should go all the way down to uh, local government, you know, and saying that there's always interest, whether you're running again or not, or you are representing, there's always extra interests that are involved when you're redrawing maps. And so I'm interested to see how this ends up turning out. A lot of maps were, uh, you know, given by normal people, some city council ones, and we'll see where it goes. But I do think there are a lot of interesting issues going on, and you brought up housing and affordability. Uh, you know, this is a, a huge issue. It needs to get uh, addressed and tackled. But, um, you know, some of the proposals that you're looking at are just cost shifting. You're moving money and saying, you know, we're going to give these people a little bit of break, but the rest of the middle class and everybody else are going to have to pay more. I don't think that you really get to this issue without increasing supply uh, and making sure that there's enough housing available uh, where these smaller fixes end up really just cost shifting to other people. Julius Michael said there's a lot of different angles to this one with the headlines coming out of the city. Um, what strikes you as one of the most significant things the city is taking on right now? I think it's got to be housing. Um, what, what we've been doing hasn't worked. Anyone can walk around Denver and see that. Um, we, ha we have to have a wide variety of strategies to address housing, and it has to be affordability both for middle class, uh, low-wage low and no-wage people. Mm -hmm. And... I believe we actually do have more of a supply than we think, but we are not holding developers accountable to make sure that they're ha that they're sharing the burden. And they, when they say, "Well, the re the the cost will go up," they always say that. And so, I think that's where the city needs to come in and have some stronger guidelines to say, "Here's what costs we will allow you to have, and here's the fees that you'll pay," and not allowing them to just pay a fee to get out of. Ha developing affordable units, because this is now a problem that affects everyone. It's no longer just about very poor people. It's about everyone who can't afford it. And we, while we do need to increase the supply some, we also need to maximize the supply that we have. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, ha it has to be a multi-pronged strategy, but it has to be a strong strategy that really looks at this holistically and over a long period. W the solutions need to happen quickly, but we need to look beyond this year.
You bring up an excellent point about that, uh, that loophole saying you can just buy your way out of it. Well, if the market's this hot and you know you could just tack that on as almost a tax to the rich people who are going to buy your, why wouldn't you do that? That's, that's, a, that's an excellent point there, Julie. Um, Eric, uh, this is not going to be a redistricting about uh, you know contentious party lines because that's not a concern in Denver. It's you know there's Democrat and more Democrat. It's not uh, it's not Republican Democrat. But there's still going to be some political arguments and and political uh, wrangling. Uh, what do you see in the horizon that we might see as part of this fight? Yeah, have you ever met an elected official who wasn't looking to just secure that district and <laughs> secure their? Uh, re-election a little mm -hmm. bit more. Of course, there's tons of self-interest here. Uh, I don't often agree with Candy Cedabaca, but occasionally she's right. On this one, she commented, I think in a story I read this morning, that one of the maps that's out there that has been worked on by a number of council people, I think six of them, mm -hmm. just conveniently protects every city council incumbent. And I don't think the purpose of districting is necessarily just incumbent protection where everyone gets their own district. Mm -hmm. The districts ought to make sense as contiguous areas representing some degree of communities of interest. And if an incumbent happens to live in it, so much the better. Now, I know any politician will consider me very naive for suggesting that, but it's still, I believe, a worthy suggestion. It's an important issue here because Denver has grown very unevenly. Some parts of Denver have exploded. Some parts of Denver have been stagnant or even, you know, slightly uh, lost population. So some districts are going to get geographically much bigger. Other districts are going to get even slightly more compact uh, because of the uneven growth. It'd be interesting to see where those lines ultimately go, but good for Candy Cedabaca for at least telling it like it is on this one. Mary, it seems to me too that there's a lot of shifting when it comes to communities of interest. Um, the, the Denver, and I'm going way back on this one, the Denver of my youth, uh, you could look at communities that have been similarly um, uh, of one flavor or another for a long time. Last 10 years, a lot of shifting has gone on. The, 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 the neighborhood that we're in right now in Five Points, I think is a great example, uh, is it is nothing like it was 10 years ago. And, and probably 10 years from now will be, will be very different. How do you think that's all going to hash out in this redistricting plan for the city? I've been looking at some of these maps. I'm really fascinated by some of the, by uh, Councilwoman Cedabaca's map and the uh, map drawn by the group of six, as it were. And when you look back at what the big fights were 10 years ago, I don't see those fights being any different this time around. The only thing that's different is it's probably going to be a much shorter process. Uh, 10 years ago, it took them eight months to, to hash through all of this. And the big issues back then were neighborhoods versus ethnic groups. And if you look at the maps that both the uh, group of six and Councilwoman C. DeBaca uh, put forward, they both do the same thing. They split Montbello in half, which I find really fascinating. Um, and, and they do it in different ways. I think uh, one splits it on a uh, vertical line and the other splits it on a horizontal line. But you know, whatever happened to keeping neighborhoods contiguous, uh, both of those maps look to split Montbello. And I can't see that that's going to come out as a popular a popular notion. The other one, of course, is what uh, Northwest Denver, and it, it's all North Denver. They, these maps are all about how you divide up the north part of Denver. On the Northwest side, the districts represented by Councilwoman C. DeBaca and Amanda Sandoval are also looking to do a lot of shifting and a lot of moving around of neighborhoods. Does that work? We'll find out. 
Even so, one conversation about is downtown a community of interest, and that might get split up or not split up. It'll be interesting. With positivity rates now back to single digits, more Colorado counties are lifting mask mandates, including Boulder County. Meanwhile, lawmakers are looking to extend the protections for healthcare whistleblowers so they extend beyond the COVID-19 pandemic. Julie, we start with you on this one. Uh, is, are, are the mandates coming down at the appropriate time? Uh, what do you think of the different things we're seeing along the COVID-19 lines? Well, I'm not a doctor, um, but I, I, the mask mandates were really hard to enforce and they weren't being enforced. So, you know, I, I read the bus and RTD tried really hard, but people come in and they're, it's under their nose. And so I don't know how much it was working and it was causing so much problem. In terms of the whistleblower protection, I think that's super important. And I think we all need to be paying attention to the fragility of our healthcare system mm -hmm. and the level of stress and burnout of our healthcare workers. I feel like that's something that keeps getting pushed under the rug. And we don't wanna wait till we have no healthcare at all, where you can't go to a hospital. And I think we're, we're, the system is very, very fragile and close to breaking because everyone has been fighting about COVID and not looking at the people that keep everything going. So that, that's a huge concern. I think that lowering things based on the numbers makes sense, but I don't think anyone knows. Are we done? Are we on a break? Mm -hmm. um, what, what's gonna happen? Everyone's talking about we're moving now towards, towards this being endemic, not pandemic. And I would just hope that this has taught us some lessons, like we need to have paid sick time so people don't feel the need to go into work sick. I think that could have prevented a lot of a lot of heartache early on, that we need to have an adequately robust public health system and healthcare workforce, and that people who are doing those kinds of jobs need to not be doxxed and not be harassed or bullied into violating their medical ethics and their, their license. So I think a lot is still to be known, mm -hmm. but these are really important issues, and I hope that people don't want it be want to be done so badly that they just say, "Well, we don't want to talk about this or think about this because our healthcare workforce needs attention." Yeah, Eric, if we can't fight over mask mandates anymore, I mean, what are we going to fight over? I mean, football season's over with, <laughs> baseball's months away. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, somehow, COVID is not done with us, <laughs> and uh, I think Julie made a number of really solid points. Uh, but, you know, if I was to wager money of whether this is the end of it or a pause, I would put my money on pause. Although when it comes back with a new variant, you know, it won't look like it did. It's constantly evolving. It's my column that is coming out uh, this week in Colorado Politics next Wednesday in the Gazette papers is on this subject. And sort of my thesis is that I think for a huge chunk of the population coming out of COVID is almost gonna be as challenging as going into COVID was in March of 2020. And how you now behave in this new world without masks or when do you wear masks and when you don't wear masks, uh, I, think, I think it's gonna be a challenge for, for, for many, many people. I think one person's acceptable risk tolerance is another person's anxious nightmare. And how do you navigate that? Marianne, how have they navigated these changes at the Capitol? Seen any changes? Absolutely. Um, last session was a good example. They had uh, glass dividers in the House and Senate chambers. Those are all now gone. Um, virtually nobody, none of the lawmakers at least, are wearing masks, although they're requiring it of the staff, of the reporters, of the lobbyists. Um, if you're wandering around the building, you've got to have a mask on, but the minute you, you see a lawmaker, none of them are wearing masks, or, or, or very, very few of them. 
So I, I think they're ready to be done with this, with the possible exception of some of the legislation that they're running, uh, like this, this bill that uh, you brought up early on. Um, and, and this bill really fascinates me because it, what it does is it allows any worker, not just healthcare workers, to report health and safety concerns to their employer and not be fired because of it. And the, it, it went back to a bill from 2020 that uh, was only during a public health emergency. And all this bill does is say, you can do this no matter when. And if the public health emergency goes away tomorrow, this law would still be enforced. The, the big question is whether this is going to drive a lot of business in the courts. When the 2020 bill came out, it had a, a small cost, not, not, a, not a minuscule cost, it was something like $270,000 with some new employees for the Department of Labor who's in charge of enforcing this. The bill that they're contemplating now is three times that amount of money and three times the number of employees. So somebody's anticipating that this is going to drive a lot more complaints. Michael, wrap it up for us. Yeah, I don't know if there's a whole lot more to, to say after that, but I do think, you know, I, I'm somebody who lives in Dugco, and so we haven't had mass mandates for, for quite a while now. Uh, and I think the, the science, the charts show that Dugco didn't have worse uh, cases than other places. But I think the key is that vaccines are much more important. Uh, and I, you know, agree with, with this newer version of, of Governor Polis, uh, who said, if you still want to do it, if you have a reason to, to wear a mask, then go ahead. Uh, but giving people more of those decisions at that point, knowing uh, that vaccines are very very important. And so, uh, you know, I think I agree with with Eric saying, uh, you know, we thought it was the end of the pandemic before. And uh, I, I just I wouldn't bet that it that it's all over. Well, it's time for a very favorite part of the show. Patty is not here, but Eric, so you get to start. But we've been a little chatty today, so we need to do disgrace the week rather quickly. The International Olympic Committee, this Olympic, every Olympic is known for one particular scene. This Olympics will be known for that scene. Last night, the Russian 15-year-old figure skater, who probably has some blame, but she was so ill-served by all the adults around her, whether it's her coaches or the Olympic Committee. What a fiasco, what a disaster. Miriam. To whomever filed the CORA request uh, down in Douglas County to, to release the names of the teachers, you can go on a any school district website and see a list of teachers. So it's not like this is hidden information, but putting this out puts these people in a position of being harassed. It's not doxing per se, but by golly, it sure looks like it. Michael. Um, it's five weeks into session, and there's been a lot of talk about dealing with this fentanyl issue. Uh, you know, the mistake that was made a couple of years ago. The governor has said it. Republicans have DAs, law enforcement. Everybody says something needs to get done and haven't seen any movement in the legislature yet. So I think it's a disgrace that they haven't addressed it. Julie. Yeah, in House Judiciary Committee this week, we heard about children being arrested and jailed for very minor offenses, as well as people in the state mental hospital at Pueblo for like 10 years for very minor things. Um, and that's a disgrace. It's a violation of civil liberties, liberties that shouldn't happen in this country. Time to say something nice about somebody. Eric. I'll go back to the Olympics. Who would have thought that two sports I discovered and really love are curling and the biathlon? <laughs> You're here. <laughs> Marianne. I, I want to give a very warm get well soon to our very good friend and, and my, my mentor and colleague, Joey Bunch, who is going through more heart trouble. Uh, and Joey, please get well soon. I, I know that your future is looking a lot different than what it, what it was perhaps even a year ago, but we love you. Keep fighting. I, I will certainly echo those remarks. Uh, Joey Bunch is one of our very favorite people around here. The world needs to hear Joey, and uh, we're here pulling, uh, pulling for you. Michael. 
Uh, Jerry Sonnenberg has a bill that would allow at least one visitor for people in hospitals so that basically nobody dies alone, and I think it's a, a good bill and it should be passed. So I want to say that that's uh, a great job by Senator Sonnenberg to do that. Julie. Agree with everyone, and um, I want to give a shout out to Girls Inc. that brought eight, nine, and ten-year-olds to testify to say kids should not be put in jail, that they should have age-appropriate consequences. Well, that is all time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night.